to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Welcome to the Freedom Hub, my friends. Got a lot to discuss with you, Buck Sexton, here. Of course, Donald Trump is calling for a look into leaks on the Manchester terrorism investigation. We also have a federal appeals court uh, ruling against Donald Trump's uh, revised uh, travel ban. Uh, We have his meeting with NATO members today. Donald Trump met with uh, members of NATO, and uh, of course the media is finding a way to make it sound like Trump's uh, disrespecting or slowly destroying that alliance, which is not true, but... No surprise there. Uh, And then we will get into some startling revelations uh, with our friends Andrew McCarthy of National Review and Sarah Carter of uh, Circa about uh, surveillance and what's going on, Uh, the alleged surveillance going on under, well, that was happening under the Obama administration, according to Sarah, and, and Andrew looks at the legalities of it, and Talking about Syria with Hassan Hassan, uh, who is a, a brilliant guy, a fantastic Mideast analyst, looking at Syria from a perspective that nobody is right now, which is just defeating ISIS is not nearly enough, my friends, even in terms of combating jihadists, never mind dealing with Assad. And then we'll talk about the uh, reporter body slam and all the all the other stuff from today. I mean, we have a, an absolutely jam-packed day. For I, I want to start off with the Manchester investigation. Uh because right now you've got a lot of uh, people in the media and the on the pro-Trump side as well saying that they are uh, very angry and there has to be a a look into the leaks. Where do these leaks come from? Um, and everyone's saying this in the media. Oh, where, where, where are these leaks coming from right now? Um, a, f- a few thoughts on this. First of all, uh, we are assuming, and I, I don't know why, but the way this is reported on, uh, we assume that it was a failing on the American side, right? There are British investigators looking at this terrorist scene, looking at uh, all the connections and, you know, M- MI5, British Counterterrorism Police. Uh, they are working with, with all of their different uh, partners and, and counterterrorism uh, aspects to try and track down other members of the cell, members of the cluster, those would be people that aren't necessarily operational in the terrorist act, but uh, have connections that would make them perhaps either accomplices or uh, ideological allies in this process. Direct connections to ISIS seem to have already been established uh, based on the family's past, uh, based on what we know about uh, Abedi. And his 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 father and his uh, siblings, um, who have already been picked up. So there's a there's a lot of moving pieces in the investigation, which is a certainly essential task of the British counterterrorism forces. But um, 
here's what happened. Here, well, here's why everyone's upset today. There are photos. Uh, there were photos published in the New York Times of the bomb and very specific components of the bomb that was used at the Ariana Grande concert in Manchester City uh, to murder 22 uh, young girls and uh, grievously wound dozens more. I mean, most of those wounded have shrapnel wounds. Uh, The shrapnel from an explosive like that would be uh, at incredibly high velocity. In fact, they reported that uh, that some of the nuts and bolts attached to this bomb, and it was uh, the the force from the explosive device was uh, all all in all facing out towards the crowd. They looked at they broke down this entire uh, crime scene, terrorist scene, and they said and they showed that uh, or they said that some of the shrapnel punctured metal doors. So terrible injuries uh, sustained even by those who survived it. And Manchester, the UK, and the whole world is still in mourning. The New York Times is publishing photos of, has published photos of the bomb and of specific components of it. And they're, def- they're defending this. I read their statement. They're saying that they're always very responsible about this and they have, uh, the public has a right to know. Um, I don't think that this is responsible reporting. I don't know why the New York Times would choose to share that information. There's There's nothing about us seeing what may be very specific telltale components of that explosive device that at this juncture, at least, the public needs to know, uh, especially if they're trying to track down a uh, bomb-making apparatus, uh, cell members who may have been assisting uh, Salman Abedi. Uh, That's not the kind of information that should be just blasted across the front page in that way. You know, the, the British have a different system, and they have the Official Secrets Act, and the, the British uh, press, while freedom, uh, while, while they have free speech on political issues, uh, they can't just publish anything they want and say, yeah, it's our call. It's interesting that in this country, the assumption among all reporters is just, well, we can publish whatever we want, even though technically they're covered by the very same laws about disclosure of classified that uh, anybody inside of the government is. Technically, they technically they are they they like they think that they're not but they actually are it's just a doj decision not to prosecute uh, people who disclose who are journalists and only to, only to prosecute those who are on the government side which when you break this down also into its ethical components okay so let's say there's an investigator in the uk uh, let's say it's an let's say there's an, an american who gets wind of from his efforts to help investigate what's going on in, in the uk and he says, look, New York Times, he reaches out, he says, New York Times, I got to show you these photos. So he's terrible and should be horribly punished. But the New York Times is just doing great journalism and they're heroes. What? Why? They're Americans, too. They're citizens. Treason still applies to them like it does to everybody else. I just I, I have a different conception of this than I guess a lot a lot of other folks do, because I look at this from a, a perspective of what's best for the country and what's ethical, not what I think uh, journalists uh, take upon themselves as special privileges. They, they Journalists think that they have special privileges because they have an editor and they have somebody who looks over their work and they have a masthead and you know, fancy type and stuff like that, uh, that they have special rights in this, in this regard. Um, now I understand on the other side of this, of course, is Buck will, if you're going to, if people are going to be in trouble for publishing information that they're not supposed to, then the government can shut down 
all discussion of any issues it doesn't want. I I get all of that, but the Brits draw lines on that. The the Brits are like, you know, if you were to come into contact with the most sensitive information imaginable as a member of the British press, um, we're not okay with you just publishing that because you know. In America, journalists are like, "Yeah, we're just going to do it." If we if we think if we think we should do it, now granted, a lot of the times journalists have information and they don't share it, um, but sometimes they do, and it's very hard to see how it's in the public interest or of public benefit, and it's very easy to see how it might be damaging. And that then brings me to the photos the New York Times was uh, has shown, and you know, once they're out there, they're out there. Right? I mean, that's the other thing is the government's like, "Oh, we still can't," you know, "we're not going to say anything about the photo." I mean, come on. At some point, all they're doing is making sure that people that work for the government still are like, I can't talk about what's on the front page of the New York Times, which sometimes is useful. But most of the time, it just means that everyone has to be petrified for no reason. Uh, And in in this case, though, with this backpack uh, that was apparently allegedly used in the uh, terrible terrorist attack in Manchester, uh, the relationship between... The Brits and the Americans on intelligence sharing has been the, one of the main topics today. And I think that's a really interesting way for the media to take this because now I, I could be missing something and I'm not on the inside anymore. Haven't been for years. So I don't know about who's talking to who and all this other stuff. Hence why I can talk to all of you now. Um, but well, how, do, how do we know that it was an American who leaked it to The New York Times instead of a Brit? Who, who shared these photos. That's that's one thing I in the Internet era. Right. I, it could have maybe I miss him. I might be missing something there. But that seems to be uh, a leap uh, for me, at least without knowing. And you know, Trump is calling for a crackdown on the leakers without knowing um, who the leaker is. How can we know if it's an Amer- how can we know if it's a breakdown in American operational uh, or infor- rather informational security? I, I'm just I'm, I'm asking a question. I, I don't have the answer to that. But it seemed to me as though the assumption all day today was, oh, this is somehow Trump's fault. Well, this is a counterterrorism investigation in the UK um, on a uh, what seems to be an I- ISIS or Al Qaeda inspired or directed attack. Well, ISIS in this case and directed attack. And. There's a information finds its way to the New York Times and the suggestion, you know, the prime minister, Theresa May, is all upset. And the suggestion is that it's Trump's fault. And I have to say, I don't think that that's the conclusion that people in the press would be coming to. Right. So they got photos that shouldn't be published in the New York Times, even if they have them. And they should know that that are being that have been published already in the New York Times. Uh, and you've got the Brits all upset saying that they're not going to share information with us if there's going to be these leaks. I don't know how the Brits know that it came from an American and not a Brit, but maybe they know. I don't know. But I do know that the story got a lot of extra lift today because it's just a continuation of what we had been told before about Donald Trump and the Russians, right? Donald Trump doesn't understand classified. Donald Trump is sharing sensitive information. He's putting people at risk. That's the storyline. Just as in the case of Russia with this, I don't buy it. I don't I don't see that as what's happening here. But you can understand how this fits into the narrative. Why is it that the main story for most of today until then it was Donald Trump is destroying NATO in the morning? The news cycle was Donald Trump uh, can't keep his people from leaking sensitive counterterrorism investigation stuff to The New York Times. And in the afternoon, it's Donald Trump is destroyed, has destroyed NATO or whatever it's, undermining Article 5, the collective defense pact 
part of NATO. But they can just turn anything turns into a negative Donald Trump story. Uh, There have been so many leaks that have been hurting the administration uh, for months now. And yet we're also to believe that somehow Trump is responsible for other leaks that are very hard to stop. And that the New York Times just shouldn't have printed this stuff. It just it wasn't it wasn't the responsible thing to do. I'm not saying that they should be getting legal jeopardy for this, but I'm just saying that it's it's not helpful. I I don't know why they thought it was helpful. Um, I'm not sure that they did. And in fact, there's a part of me that thinks that maybe they had this information Just hear me out on this, everybody. Maybe the New York Times gets this sensitive counterterrorism investigation information, these photographs from the Manchester bombing uh, terror crime scene and figures, well, we'll run these. It'll get a lot of clicks and also it'll show that Trump can't control sensitive information at a time when the relationship between the U.S. and the Brits is so critical on counterterrorism issues. This this will just sort of, you know, throw some gasoline on that fire, too. Am I off on this one? Am I missing something? Is that beyond the thinking and scope of those who make these decisions at the New York Times? I'm asking questions. I think these are questions that others should be asking, too. But you will notice that, oh, yes, leaks. Trump is saying the leaks must be uh, cracked down upon. But the one leak from today was supposed to make Trump look like he can't control the relationship with the Brits in some way. It looked bad for the U.S., bad for the U.S., bad for Trump. I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think so at all. 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-2825. We've got more on this and a whole lot of other stuff, including uh, uh, updates in the counterterrorism investigation itself and surveillance issues, spying. Oh, my, busy hour. We'll be right back. Forgive me. Those were the last words, according to the Daily Mail here, of the Manchester suicide bomber Salman Abedi when he called his mother, who's a nuclear scientist, by the way, uh, right before the attack. Um, that's, uh, that's what the Daily Mail is saying here. Um, what, a, what a horrific, horrific incident, although it follows a a script that we've become all too familiar with of radicalization and repeated uh, calls to authorities about the possible radicalization of a young Muslim uh, male. And they don't stay on top of the issue because they've got a lot of other radicalization uh, problems to be looking at inside the UK. Thousands of them. If you uh, see what's being reported these days and nothing was done. And now a lot of people are dead. Uh, It's terrible. It is terrible. And as I've said to you, there are no satisfying solutions for what to do now. There are some ideas. There's worthwhile pursuits of um, certain programs that we could try, counter-radicalization programs. um, But, you know, surveillance is imperfect. All of this is imperfect. If you have people that are this evil very hard to stop them 100% of the time from uh, harming a lot of innocent people. Um, Ann in Virginia on uh, WKCI. What's up, Ann? Good evening, Mr. Wonderful Buck Sexton. Hi, thanks. 
in light in light of your background, how do you respond to the fact or react to the fact that these people were on lists? Weren't they monitored? I mean, they were known about. How do you react to that? Well, there's only there's only so much that you can do on the security service side when there's no criminal activity that has been engaged in. I, I know this is, people never like hearing this, and I understand why. It, un, unfortunately, it is just reality. Um, you can, it, let, let's say, for example, Salman Abedi, uh, the, um, the imam at a mosque called authorities, which I, I can't remember exactly if that was what happened here. But let's say uh, that Salman Abedi uh, had somebody in the community call the police on him. Because he was saying that he likes ISIS and he wants ISIS to defeat the coalition in Syria. That's not, I mean, it's certainly not by U.S. law. I don't I can't speak that uh, that uh, precisely to, to British law, but that's not illegal here. So what do you do? So now you know the guy has some really terrible ideas, but do you put him under 24-7 surveillance? They probably had some uh, effort to monitor him in place, but it wasn't enough. And there are a lot, there's a lot of other people they're trying to monitor. So, you know, and that also, by the way, should for those who are saying that there's no uh, that, there's, that there's no connection here between the, like the Islamic community and terrorism. And well, if there are 3000 people who are all of uh, of Muslim background in the UK under surveillance for terrorism uh, suspicion, that's that's meaningful. <laughs> that's a lot. That, that's not a, a one off thing here or there. So, and that's that's the truth of it on the list. I wish I had a more satisfying answer for you, but um, thank you for thank you for calling in, Janet in Georgia on the iHeart app. What's up, Janet? Hi, Beth. I wanted to ask you, um, what did you? Wh- I have not heard anything reference with regard to the 2010 Russian spy ring and how they infiltrated into. Um, you know, they were trying to infiltrate into governmental agencies and they actually have one of the spies was actually connected to Hillary Rodham Clinton's finance chairman for her 2008 presidential campaign and the fact that Robert Mueller was the FBI director that was in you know the head of the FBI at the time that that investigation was going on and from what I've read they actually the FBI actually pulled the plug and had those guys rolled up because, contra- contrary to some initial reporting, it seemed like they were actually making progress. They weren't the, you know, the bumbling idiots that the press immediately. Yeah, said. I, the, the 2010. Uh, this is from the L.A. Times. Uh, the Russian spies were succeeding, FBI officials say, and the ten sleeper agents exposed in 2010 were reportedly succeeding in efforts to rise in American society and gain connections to policymakers. This is from the L.A. Times. So, hmm. And they did. And uh, one more thing that makes it so important as, you know, where, where they actually, you know, initially they were acting like it was no big deal, but we had a colonel, C- Colonel Alexander, I don't know how to say his last name, P-O-T-E-Y-E-V, who was high up in the Soviet military in Moscow, and we burned that guy um, to because you know it got revealed that he. Um, uh, Janet, we're at we're at time, but I do appreciate you calling and thank you. Shields high team. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty. 
where you're the party, and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Explosive revelation of Obama administration, illegal surveillance of Americans. That is the headline from uh, his piece on nationalreview.com right now. We are joined by our friend Andy McCarthy. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, a best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. Andy, always great to have you. Buck, thank you. Buck, thanks for having me. Uh, explosive revelation, Obama administration, illegal surveillance. That's all in the title, Andy. Tell us what's going on. Well, a the FISA court uh, found that the Obama administration, uh, with regularity and extensively, violated the restrictions that exist on how you do uh, a certain variety of uh, foreign intelligence collection. Uh, And the result of it was that uh, lots and lots of American communications inside the United States were uh, not only collected, but uh, evidently scrutinized and made their ways uh, into reporting, which isn't supposed to happen. Um, To do what they did, the administration had to basically violate a black and white rule that's in the uh, instructions for carrying out this kind of surveillance, which says that you're not allowed to use the identifying information of American citizens in searching through the database that the uh, NSA has for uh, intelligence collection that it that it does uh, by tapping into the switches that connect big uh, internet systems, uh, and that's what they did here. I mean, basically, they got told you can't do this, and they did it. And it looks like they did it again and again and again. For what would do? What what is doing it mean in this context, Andy? Well, it means that you take um, the identifying information of an American citizen, like a. Uh, uh, email address or a phone number and you run it through the data system and what they were not allowed to do was use american identifying information the the purpose of this kind of foreign intelligence surveillance uh is to collect intelligence on foreigners outside the united states and the only way americans are supposed to be relevant to that is if they are uh, communicating with the foreign person outside the United States who was the subject of the intelligence collection. Instead, the way that the administration did it, the way the NSA did it under uh, the Obama administration, uh, enabled it to essentially collect not only American communications, but the communications between two Americans inside the United States that had absolutely nothing to do with foreign intelligence. And the only way they were able to carry it out, Buck, was by violating a rule that was very straightforward. The rule said, do not use American identifying information to search the database. And they used it anyway. How is that not? I mean, Andy, you're a former federal prosecutor. How how is this not a massive Fourth Amendment breach? It seems to me that it is a massive Fourth Amendment breach. It's not getting... I I think, Buck, you know, I I mean, you and I... um, are into this uh, Intel stuff, and we are into the uh, technology, although I must say I've had to learn a lot about it in the last uh, 48 hours or so. But 
you know, we follow this stuff, so it's of interest to us. My sense in trying to explain it to people, which is why I, I, I try to write the piece that you were kind enough to refer to in a way that explains to the um, uneducated in this area common person what, what the problem is here. Um, but what I find is that people's eyes glaze over. It's complicated. Um, so, you know, by the time you get finished explaining the, the technology to them, and how they pulled this off, um, you know, I, I, I just think people sort of say, yeah, okay, that sounds bad. But, but, but I, I read your piece very closely, Andy, and for those listening, it's, it's on nationalreview.com right now, and we're speaking to Andrew McCarthy, uh, and it seems clear to me that you, and this is what you did, and, you know, there's a special, I tell people about this, that people that work in law enforcement, people that are prosecutors, they develop instincts and senses about things. They know when things are off. The cops that I worked with at the NYPD, they always knew when somebody was lying. I mean, if you were lying about what you put in your coffee, they, they generally kind of knew that too. They just get, <laughs> right. they just get used to knowing when someone's lying and they like to, they like to, you know, flex that muscle. And it, it can be kind of funny sometimes, but on very serious issues, it's very useful. Uh, you, you think that there's some funky smell here. You think something nefarious is up. Well, you know, if this was a one-off buck, I would be willing to say that this is one of those situations where what we're dealing with here, which is what they call upstream intelligence collection, that is where you're tapping the switches that connect these huge computer networks. Uh, this, is the, this is the stuff that makes the Internet global. It's the stuff that allows it's – the, it's the connections that allow – uh, you know, someone uh, on a dime in New York uh, to to hit send and, you know, in a nanosecond later, uh, an email shows up in Afghanistan or someplace. Right. Um, that's it seems like magic to us that it happens that way. But it's because of this complex architecture. And if this was a one off, I would be willing to say that the problem here is that the technology has outstripped our ability to bring it into compliance with the Fourth Amendment. And what I mean by that is it's now physically, technologically impossible to intercept on one of these switches a single email from a foreign target of, uh, of intelligence collection. What you have to do uh, in tapping on these switches is basically grab big packets of emails. And then what the what the programs they have do is sift through the packet so that they can digitally reassemble the one email that they're interested in and get rid of everything else, which sounds like it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. But in Fourth Amendment terms, what it means is that they have uh, seized and searched through your email uh, in order to discount it as not part of the email that they're looking for. So that's a long-winded way of saying we have a big technological challenge if you're going to do this kind of surveillance and bring it into compliance with, with traditional Fourth Amendment principles. And people are struggling hard with that. And I would imagine they make mistakes, and I'd be willing to give them rhythm for that. But the problem is that this violation happens in a broader context where we have found that there's been the use of foreign intelligence collection authority to do domestic surveillance on political adversaries of the 
incumbent administration. In, in, and what I'm talking about, of course, is uh, the investigation of Trump. We have found that in that context, um, there's been a lot of unmasking that's gone on in the last couple of years. The pace of unmasking uh, seems to have uh, have spiked a good deal in the last couple of years, which means they are intercepting Americans supposedly incidentally in the course of conducting foreign intelligence surveillance, and then they're revealing their names in the reporting. And then the next thing you have in the chain is the president uh, issues these very strange orders to make the intelligence more widely disseminated and make it easier to unmask identities. And then we hear from yet another person that the administration and people who were friends outside the administration were putting pressure on Congress to try to get uh, Congress to demand more and more intelligence information, particularly about Trump, which guaranteed that there would be more leaking. And finally, what we've seen again and again and again in the last several months are some really shocking leaks of classified information. So I don't see this as a one-off. I see it as, as, as a violation that happens in the context of a lot of very troubling uh, activity. We're speaking to Andrew McCarthy. He's a contributing editor at National Review. His piece is Explosive Revelation of Obama Administration, Illegal Surveillance, of Americans. Andy, at this point, if you were if you were assigned to this case, once again, as as a federal prosecutor, uh, I, I know that you you wouldn't be able to prove it yet. But would you be thinking that there were people in the Obama administration who were using intelligence collection authority to look at Trump campaign affiliated people? Yes. I mean, that, that's yeah, stunning. I, I, I would. Yeah, I would. Well, I think it's it's certainly it, it meets the threshold of what you would look for for purposes of an investigation. Now, whether it actually became provable or went someplace or whether my theory, you know, my working theory turned out to be either wrong or something I couldn't prove is another story. But um, uh, you certainly would approach this in that manner. And, you know, I think I would go after it with the two things that would be, you know, either most demanding of attention or easiest uh, information to wrap your brain around at the beginning and then go from there. The, the thing that has to be looked at is leaks, because that's the only crime that we know of. Uh, and if you're going to have a grand jury investigation, which I think this ought to be, uh, it's got to be centered around a crime. So you have this leaking of classified information, uh, and I would be you know, trying to run uh, – I'd be trying to isolate – who had access, especially early access, to the information that ended up in the media. And the second thing that I would, um, I'd be looking at, Buck, because this would be very easy to determine quickly, and in fact, I really don't know why we don't publicly know this already, and that is who in the administration did the unmasking. We know Susan Rice, uh, at least it's been reported, uh, did it at least once, I believe, in connection with, with General Flynn, but there are obviously others who were doing the unmasking. But I'd want to know who did the unmasking, which is something they keep records of, and what Trump officials, Trump campaign figures, people in Trump's orbit, even Trump himself, which Americans were unmasked. Uh, because if an unmasking happens you know, once or twice, you can chalk that up to the idea that somebody in good faith thought that 
the identity of the American needed to be known in order to understand and exploit the intelligence value of the communication or the report they were looking at. But if it's a pattern where it's a bunch of unmaskings of, of the same people or people who, uh, you know, have in common that they're uh, in the circle of somebody like Trump, then you start to, to say to yourself, no, this is not uh, something that was done out of good faith uh, intelligence work. This is done uh, for purposes of uh, domestic political spying. Andy, one more for before we let you go, and we appreciate you making the time for us today. Uh, I, I haven't had a chance yet to ask you what you think about the special counsel, uh, special counsel, and the uh, you know, Mueller investigation uh, as it's going forward, or Mueller investigation rather as it's going forward. What do you think about all of it? Well, I'm not a fan of special counsels uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, I think they're they're unconstitutional. Um, but here, as a practical matter, I think the other Real big problem I have with it, Buck, is that um, you usually want to have a crime before you assign a prosecutor to it. I mean, that's how it generally works at a prosecutor's office. And no one to this point can say there's a crime. And what that powerfully suggests to me is that this is just a political narrative. So the problem is if you appoint someone like a special prosecutor to it, it fills a gaping hole in the narrative because once a prosecutor is assigned to something – even though we've been told again and again this is a counterintelligence investigation, not a criminal investigation, people instantly assume that there must be a crime, otherwise they wouldn't have appointed a prosecutor. Do you think then so, proce- are process crimes then, Andy, what they're really looking for here, like lying under oath, uh, obstruction? Well, I think, I think this is more political than legal, Buck. I think what they're trying to do and what they've largely uh, succeeded in doing to this point uh, is paralyzing the administration so that it can't really move forward with its agenda. Whether they can get some process crimes out of it, too, uh, or a couple of other prosecutions of people around Trump that end up having nothing to do with collusion with the Russians, it's all the better for them. But I really think this is more of a political exercise than a legal one. Having said that, I think Mueller is a very good man. And if you have to have uh, a special prosecutor or, an, or a, what they call it, special counsel now, um, you know, I think he's a good man. He'll do a good job. And I'm encouraged by the fact that, you know, he's 72. He's already got a stellar uh, reputation. He's made his mark uh, on the United States. And he doesn't need this to make a big splash. So right. He doesn't need trophies. Yeah. That's I'm good. That's how it'll go. All right. Andrew McCarthy, everybody. He is a contributing editor at National Review. Read his latest piece. It is excellent. It's up on NationalReview.com. Andy, always great to have you, sir. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Buck. Uh, Team phone lines are open, 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. Shortly, I will be traveling to the NATO summit, where I will be working with international colleagues on defeating terrorism. I will make clear to President Trump that intelligence that is shared between our law enforcement agencies must remain secure. I still don't know why. I, I, I'm looking for the answer. I, I might be missing something very obvious. That can happen. I, I have to read a tremendous amount every day before I do this show. I, my, my eyes one day are just going to fall out of my head from reading for radio, but that's okay. As long as I have my voice, I can do my job, I guess. But I... I I don't understand why we assume that this was a failure on the American side because an American paper published it. That 
American papers have sources all over the place. New York Times certainly does. So I, I just, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer to that question, but uh, I, I do think it's uh, it's also unfair to blame President Trump for uh, that leak. Like, w- what's he going to do? I mean, anybody who's worked in the government and, and held a clearance and been around that national security uh, community knows that there's a, there's, so, there's a lot of people and you know everyone can be in contact with everybody with the touch of a button these days so i understand they're going to try to look into this and crack down on this but here's here's my concern um while a lot of people are you know shaking a finger and and getting uh angry about leaks and saying we need to find the leakers we need to find the leakers they're not going to find the leakers who put stuff out there that really is dangerous that's my guess but they will find some low-level guy in either the intelligence community or the military to make an example of. And that really, really, uh, I was trying to find the right word, really agitates me. If it wasn't a family show, I'd use a very different kind of word. Um, but it really gets me very, uh, very angry um, because it's so unfair. Uh, we see the way that Hillary Clinton was treated with, you know, how with, with classified and those rules. Uh, we saw what happened. Look, I know a lot of you think he's a he's a good man and he served his country honorably, and I, I get all that. But you know, General Petraeus, and I, I don't so much object to Petraeus's treatment as to the fact that if it wasn't Petraeus, the treatment would have been much more severe. Uh, and that's what you're going to see here. So uh, I know right now a lot of uh, TV pundits and others are, oh, we got to find the leakers, find the leakers. Okay. Well, what you're going to do is create a political environment where uh, the, the people that are leaking really damaging stuff know that they're doing it, and so they are careful about it. Um, but somebody else who makes a mistake, who's you know a, a good person and a patriot, you know some I don't know uh, some guy in the army or somebody working at uh, you know low level analyst at, at State Department or somewhere is going to mess up small time, but they're going to catch him and they're going to make it big time. And they're going to just annihilate somebody and say, see, we punish the leakers. And that's one of the more disgraceful things about the way the government functions in this regard. Um, they make examples by destroying the lives of the weak and the those without connections. And we see the powerful for the same offenses and the same problems just get much gentler, easier treatment. Uh, and they're not going to find the leakers of the really bad stuff. We'll be right back. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Trump and NATO. All right. North Atlantic Treaty Organization. NATO. Let's talk about this a bit, shall we? Uh, uh, First of all, you have so many people who haven't mentioned NATO in years in the press and in politics. Now, all of a sudden, NATO is is sacrosanct and uh, they're all NATO experts, which I know that happens with a lot of different things in the news cycle. But right now, in particular, there's a lot of sanctimonious NATO analysis out there. It's like it's the linchpin of the free world. If if Trump was running around saying uh, NATO is dead, long live Russia, I could understand the reaction from some members of the press. But that's that's not what's happened. Um, on some issues, he, in his speech today uh, in Brussels, was uh, right along what you would expect, right? He talked about uh, fighting terrorism and NATO's role in that. Six- 
All people who cherish life must unite in finding, exposing, and removing these killers and extremists. And yes, losers. They are losers. Wherever they exist in our societies, we must drive them out and never, ever let them back in. NATO has uh, played a role, certainly in the war on terror and, uh, and in Afghanistan. Um, and many of our most important counterterrorism partners are NATO allies. So there's a role for NATO in that. But let's also all be very clear that the U.S. is still carrying a vast majority of the load of uh, counterterrorism operations against global jihadist entities, wherever they may be. Right? We are still doing the lion's share of the work on that, no question about it. But we have important, important allies in Europe. But NATO isn't really a counterterrorism alliance. Um, and, and that's not really the, the right tool. I mean, this is a, a, a collective security agreement uh, among 28 countries. Uh, soon, I think, Mont- what, Montenegro soon to join. Uh, that has to do with great power conflict. Of course, it formed uh, in opposition to the Warsaw Pact, which is no more because the Soviet Union is no more. Um, We have been led to believe recently because it is politically expedient. It's fun for Democrats right now to pretend that Russia is this terrible, omnipresent threat. And so they also see NATO as more essential than ever before uh, to push back on Russian encroachment it, it is an interesting question to ask because you get different answers i think than a lot of people would expect when you pose for example okay let's say russia um pulls some kind of uh maskarovka some kind of deception military deception operation uh war by concealment and let's say they stage some problem in Latvia, and now you have a group of paramilitary types, you know, soldiers without a specific designation, insignia, or national origin, at least defined national origin, and and they are, they they create some incident, right? There's a they beach a, a Russian ship in Latvia, and they say, oh, we need to secure it, I, you know, whatever it may be. I don't know. You know, put your Tom Clancy thinking caps on, and you'll come up with something. That's what the Russians do, though, right? I mean, you know, that all of a sudden in, in eastern Ukraine, in, uh, what is it, Luhansk and Donetsk, you've got these breakaway areas where guys that look a lot like they could be Russian Spetsnaz are all of a sudden uh, taking over government buildings and saying, yeah, we're now, we're now an independent republic from the rest of Ukraine. So this is not far-fetched stuff. The Russians have been trying this out in recent years in other places. Uh, in Ukraine, we agreed through the uh, the Budapest Memorandum to, along with Russia and Great Britain, to protect Ukraine uh, if it gave up its nuclear weapons. It gave up its nuclear weapons, and we did not protect Ukraine. Uh, so let's just all be honest about that fact. We said, okay, well, we're not we're not going to go to war with Russia over Ukraine. We're not. So that's just the reality. In Latvia, if the Russians rolled in an armored division. Do I think that Article 5, uh, which is the collective security or the common defense provision, uh, do I think that Article 5 would be invoked? Yeah, I do. 
Um, and that would be a very terrible day for the world. Uh, things would get ugly and messy and uh, tragic quite quickly. Um, hopefully it would be a very short-lived exchange, but w- we have not seen a, you know, a first-world military go up against a first-world military in a long time. This is this has not been a, a, a recent American experience, right, or, or European experience for that matter. We've been fighting wars uh, in places, in fact, generally speaking, fighting wars in some of the most backwards, uh, technologically inept parts of the entire globe. Um, and this would it, anything against the Russians, even in a short in a short term limited engagement, a limited incursion would be very, uh, very precarious, uh, very dangerous for us. Um, we'd win, but at what cost and how quickly and on all the rest of it. Uh, but what, let's say that the Russians did something kind of sneaky in Latvia. Do we all of a sudden decide that we're just going to, you know, 82nd Airborne shows up and takes care of the problem? I don't know. I don't think it's as cut and dry as a lot of people assume it would be um, because the the Russians have been testing out the limits of the U.S. and NATO response in recent years. And it's a fair question to ask as well. Okay, well, uh, you know, where do we where do we draw the line? We draw the line at NATO. Okay, fine. Um, But if that's going to be the way it is, if we really are going to treat a violation of Latvian sovereignty, like it's a violation of Florida's sovereignty uh, in terms of our military response, then we can start asking some questions, too, and and making perhaps some demands. And that's what Trump was saying today about the 23 of 28 NATO countries that are not paying the 2% that they have agreed as a benchmark. It's not as cut and dry as people say it is. Agreed as a benchmark for military spending. But 23 of the 28 member nations are still not paying what they should be paying and what they are supposed to be paying for their defense. This is not fair to the people and taxpayers of the United States. And many of these nations owe massive amounts of money from past years and not paying in those past years. Over the last eight years, the United States spent more on defense than all other NATO countries combined. If all NATO members had spent just 2% of their GDP on defense last year, we would have had another $119 billion for our collective defense and for the financing of additional NATO reserves. So he's making a point here that uh, I know is not the most nuanced way of doing it. They don't owe money, and we're certainly not going to send a a collection agency after the 23 countries of NATO that don't pay the the 2% of GDP that they have. Remember, they've set that up as a a a self-identified or or a self, uh, well, it's a benchmark. They're, They're trying to hit it, but they're not bound to it by any law um that's just the way it is i mean i know people are all oh, buck they said two percent they're not doing two percent i know but they said it's you know we, we would like to do two percent there's not a there's not a mechanism of enforcement so whether they've said they'll do it or not uh officially doesn't really make all that much difference because we're not a, we're not going to do anything to force their hand on this other than try to exert diplomatic pressure which is what trump is doing he's saying look you, you guys should be paying more for all this and and uh, and that's fair 
uh, Europe, while we often talk about the European social programs and the Bernie Sanders progressive left in this country wants to create a, a mirror image of some of those programs, especially when it comes to health care and uh, other large public expenditures. The other side of that is that we have been providing an umbrella of security protection for the Europeans for a long time. When you do not have to worry about being the global hegemon, and in fact, you don't have to really worry about being invaded or overrun, uh, which is true of Europe in the American post-World War II, or sorry, in the post-Soviet American uh, hegemony era, then you can spend a lot more money on, you know, schools and healthcare and other stuff and not worry as much about your defense budget. Now, there's another side of this as well that you won't hear many people mentioning, which is that, you know, Europe used to spend a lot of money on defense. And a lot of these European countries had really serious armies. And that wasn't a good thing, necessarily. That, that led to, depending on the period in time we're talking about it, it went really bad at sometimes. Uh, in fact, almost destroyed the world. So... Uh, and and in in at least a, a couple of cases led to tens of uh, tens of millions of casualties, right? So you know uh, that that wasn't long ago either. I think it's interesting. You know, people would point out that NATO holds all of it together and prevents that similar uh, military escalation from occurring, and that we're in a new we're there's a new Europe and there's the euro and. But that stuff is beginning to fracture. In fact, there are some books written by very serious uh, geo political experts in recent years about how uh, we, we think of Europe as just going to be charming people speaking different languages with cute cobblestone streets and lots of wonderful history um, for the decades ahead. But if the euro uh, splits apart as a currency, if, if people just decide they've had enough and we've begin, we've begun to see some of the cracks with Brexit, um, but now you'll have you, you could see a future where you have sovereign states acting as sovereign states in Europe uh, with large populations um, and considerable uh, military force at their disposal. And maybe, you know, we're not going to see Germany and France get too uppity with each other, but you look at some of the Eastern European countries that are at play here, you look at what's going on with the Baltics and Russia, and it becomes a combustible situation. So uh, just because things have been a certain way does not mean they will continue, as we know. That's one of the most obvious uh, you know, truisms imaginable, right? Just because they've been that way doesn't mean they will be. But in the case of NATO, that has meaning, I think. Uh, we have an assumption that Europe will just be what it has been, and that's not necessarily the case. So that's my stuff on Europe and NATO. I mean, look, the truth is, Trump's, everyone's all upset because he didn't give a, an explicit endorsement of the common defense provision today. I mean, whatever, dude. He's in for NATO. It's fine. People are getting all, ooh, Trump. Like I said, in the morning, it was Trump can't control leaks, as if he controls every person who has access to classified. And in the afternoon, it's, you know, Trump didn't give enough lip service to NATO's common defense provision, Article 5. I mean, all right. He didn't say disband NATO or anything. There was also a news story that said that Trump tried to push somebody out of the way. I forget who it was, one of these guys. Was it Macron of France? I was somebody. Trump tried to shove somebody. He didn't shove anybody. I mean... Reporters are just, they're just wacko over all this stuff. All right, I, I, we, got, we got the uh, the travel ban update for you, the Trump travel ban order update, etc. We've got to hit that. We'll be right back. Team, I was going to give you some updates on the um, 
situation with the travel ban, the Fourth Circuit, but oh my, we got some, as tends to happen here in the Freedom Hub, we got some breaking news late in the day uh, from NBC News, uh-oh, NBC, Kushner under FBI scrutiny in Russia probe. So you got Jared Kushner here, who's the president's son-in-law and one of his senior advisors, and I I cannot begin to explain, nor would I try to defend the practice of making children officially senior or son-in-law and daughter senior advisors in a government. Um, I I do not I do not approve. But Buck does not thumbs up this process. But it's not up to me. Um, but I think it it does it, it, the optics of it are poor. That I will say. Um, but anyway. And Jared Kushner is a billionaire, scion of a billionaire family and uh, all that good stuff. Here's what it says in NBC News. Um, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and one of his senior advisors, has come under FBI scrutiny in the Russia investigation. Investigators believe Kushner has significant information relevant to their inquiry. That does not mean they suspect him of a crime or intend to charge him. The FBI scrutiny of Kushner places the Bureau's sprawling counterintelligence and criminal investigation not only on the doorstep of the White House, but on the cusp of the Trump family circle. Let me break this down for a second, my friends. Uh, so what this story, which is their big breaking news story now on NBC News, what it really says, if you read between the lines a little bit, if you just poke around a bit, and it's a short piece is that there are people who are the U.S. government who just decided to tell the NBC News team or journalists at NBC that they're looking at Jared Kushner for some stuff, just FYI. Why is that appropriate? Who is a a U.S. official with access to what the FBI's counterintelligence and criminal investigation is up to and thinks that it is right to pass this information on to NBC. Why would they do that? Unless, oh, here we go. We go to motive, my friends. Remember, motive, it's fun, tells you a lot. Unless the idea here is just to put information out that raises the suspicion or uh, casts a, a gray cloud over Jared Kushner and raises suspicions around him without having to prove anything or say anything at all. Uh, Any number of people could be involved as not targets, but uh, could be involved just as people with information with regard to this Russia collusion investigation. Why would investigators release their names to the press? They're playing so very dirty on all of this, and it's uh, it's distressing to see it because I do think there has been a a politicization uh, at a, at very senior levels within the law enforcement bureaucracy that is dangerous, um, that seeks to subvert the electoral process that elevated Donald Trump above Hillary Clinton. There are people, and I don't like to use the term deep state because, as I've told you, that's a bit strong because it's not a uh, it's not an omnipresent force that has been overturning elections for decades, uh, as is the case in Turkey, which is where the deep state concept comes from. But this isn't good. Uh, this is 
yet another little leak to the press meant to look bad for the administration, meant to look bad for, uh, in this case, Jared Kushner. Even though if you read into the piece, you're like, okay, so what they're saying is that they want to talk to him because he might know some stuff, but there's no reason to believe he's done anything wrong. But if you repeat that every day, FBI investors, investors, whoops, FBI investigators uh, want to talk to, you know, they want to talk to my friend Bob. And every week I hear about how the FBI wants to talk to my friend Bob. I start to think that Bob did something wrong, right? I'm I'm not just sitting around like, well, they just want to talk to Bob because, you know, they're the FBI. That's what they do. No, I think that after a while I begin to reach the conclusion that uh, good old Bob's been up to some stuff and the FBI wants to figure out what it is. This is obvious. Everyone can understand this. Everyone knows this. So by just releasing names in the context of FBI wishes to talk to so-and-so, FBI has an interest in so-and-so, um, it's a means of sullying people, uh, sullying the names of people who are uh, out in, well, part of this White House and part of this administration. Oh, wait, I wanted to throw one more thing in the mix before and I forgot to. So this is, consider this a uh, a quick redo about the whole NATO thing, guess who was in Germany uh, letting people know what he thinks about the actual current president of the United States, the former president, Obama. Here's what he said. If there are disruptions in these countries, if there's conflict, if there's bad governance, if there's war, if there's poverty, in this new world that we live in, we can't isolate ourselves. We can't hide behind a wall. Uh, and I think it's very important for us to see oh, those investments him. Oh, such as a, part such a clever swipe of our own Trump. well-being as well as uh, to the benefit of to the. I've never heard Obama say anything that I thought was uh, insightful or profound in a public speech ever. And maybe I'm missing something. I've heard a lot of platitudes and a lot. And I know that that's what most politicians speeches are. But never once has Obama come out and said anything. Where I'm like, yeah, that was really wow. That made me think that was really, really good stuff. Uh, anyway, and notice how George W. Bush stops being the president, goes on with his life and enjoys life as a private citizen. And in fact, recently he kind of video bombed somebody from behind at a, a baseball game. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, Obama's not going anywhere except in the public eye. He, he, he wants to be in front of everybody all the time. I think that surprises none of us. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. All right, team, welcome back. Thank you very much for being here with me. We are joined by uh, Hassan Hassan. He's a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy, and he co-wrote the 2015 New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Hassan, thanks so much for calling. My pleasure. Uh, I thought this piece in Political Magazine on the Islamic State and Israeli uh, Israeli officers' um, analysis of the situation was very, uh, very provocative. They said the the worst is yet to come about uh, the situation in Syria. Uh, what do you make of all this? Well, I, I thought it was a fascinating uh, insight, especially this is the uh, kind of, uh, to me, this was the first time uh, to see what the Israelis are thinking about this. You know, uh, they've been quiet about the, uh, the Islamic State uh, thing and about the Syrian conflict for, for quite a while. So it was it was interesting. It's uh, certainly in line with I, with what I've been saying for a long time that uh, 
the way the U.S. is doing the fight against ISIS is not uh, is not done in a way is not done. Uh, will not basically defeat ISIS uh, ultimately. ISIS, uh, in many cases, is ahead of the game in some aspects of its, uh, uh, you know, for example, in terms of adaptation. Uh, every, every time it's uh, losing more and more territory, uh, or, you know, uh, it's losing territory, yes, but it's uh, adapting to the situation, it's changing tactics, and the forces that the United States is working with uh, in the ground in Syria, on the ground in Syria and Iraq are not adapting uh, as ISIS uh, changes uh, tactics. Um, uh, in fact, just uh, last week, one State Department official uh, admitted in a private conversation that uh, ISIS has changed uh, its tactics to the insurgency tactics, uh, uh, tactics to the, uh, the tactics that ISIS used before the takeover of Mosul, before the rise of ISIS in 2004, uh, 2014. And uh, the U.S.-led coalition uh, has not yet caught up with these tactics and they say we don't have time and resources to work on that aspect until we finish ISIS in Mosul and Raqqa. One of the Israeli uh, Defense Force uh, officials that's quoted this says about the Islamic State, if going north or west is not an option, they're going to go somewhere else. Um, and Jordan is very concerned about the Islamic State. Uh, they also mention Lebanon and the the push into Lebanon of, of ISIS fighters. Uh, I don't think that's often factored into our analysis, uh, at least when people talk about the Islamic State and the campaign against it in this country, uh, Hassam, when we discuss it, that uh, there are ISIS fighters that are already infiltrating other parts of the region. Yeah. It is, it is a problem, I think, for a year now, um, uh, or kind of a year ago, I thought ISIS uh, appeal internationally, as in beyond the core of Syria and Iraq, has started to be separated from its uh, military performance on the ground, uh, meaning whatever, whatever happens to ISIS in Syria and Iraq no longer affects its appeal outside. And that's dangerous because you can no longer challenge uh, the group based on defeating its uh, military on the ground. It's expanding in some uh, aspects. It's changing, it's adapting, it's trying to uh, preempt and kind of uh, uh, think about uh, how it can survive after it's uh, dislodged from Mosul and, and from Raqqa. And I think it is uh, dangerous, as the Israelis have identified, that ISIS has started to look abroad uh, rather than just stick to Syria and Iraq. So in a way, uh, when ISIS is defeated, it doesn't mean that they start thinking small and they no longer think about expanding and doing the same thing again. They might think uh, more big than they did before. So you saw the episode just um, a day or two days ago when they stormed into this uh, southern uh, Philippine uh, town uh, and, and they almost took over uh, the town. So the, the, they're no longer kind of satisfied with just doing hit and run operations, they think about these hit-and-run operations and, 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 uh, for the goal of kind of eroding their enemy and kind of depleting their uh, uh, opponents in order to gain more and more ground. They have a plan for like, long-term survival. We're speaking to Hassan Hassan. He's a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. Back to this political piece for a second, Hassan. Uh, they write, uh, what ISIS has been saying since the beginning, the concept of the caliphate was... We need to put our house in order first, and then we have time to fight the outside powers. 
Um, and he said that he believes the United States, this is an IDF officer, the United States has failed to understand the competing interests and constantly shifting alliances among what the IDF estimates are between 400 and 500 different groups fighting in the Syrian civil war, including underestimating the level of local support that ISIS actually has. End quote. There's a lot. Unpack that for us, Hassan. There's a lot that's being said there. Four or five hundred groups. ISIS has widespread or wider uh, support than people realize. What do you make of that? To uh, a certain degree, I agree. Uh, agree on uh, on that, but I also disagree on uh, on the kind of the depiction of ISIS uh, as um, uh, you know. ISIS when it took over Syria and Iraq, it did to a large degree. It did it by force. It wasn't welcomed by outs- outsiders. But once it took over these areas, it used uh, different. It used violence, extreme savagery, to deter people from rising up against it. But they also did good, like uh, positive things, do, uh, good things, if you like, in terms of services and stuff like that. They wanted to do incentivize people to do to to accept them. That's why some people accepted them because they are uh, they were more disciplined, more organized. Uh, they governed better uh, than the the chaos that uh, you know that, uh, that prevailed before them. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, the groups that kind of uh, Syria has like not only 500 uh, different organizations. I think these are like the substantial uh, organizations. Uh, they might have like I think probably close to a thousand small groups in, in different areas and so on and so forth. Uh, but ISIS has always been a third force in the Syrian conflict. They were not the ones that are considered as part of the opposition. Uh, for Al Qaeda, for example, has been considered part of the opposition because they worked very closely with the with the other 500 groups, if you like, uh, worked with them and uh, cooperated with them on a military level against the Syrian uh, regime in some areas. But I, ISIS uh, wanted to dominate and raise a slogan, which is either either uh, you fight under our banner or you're uh, you're the enemy. So either with us or against us, and you have to uh, to have you have to. Uh, abandon your organization and become an ISIS uh, member. And what do you think about the uh, ability of the forces currently arrayed against ISIS in Syria to maintain? I mean, well, let me ask it. Ask the, actually, ask the question this way: Once Raqqa is taken, and once ISIS no longer controls any large pieces of territory in Syria. Uh, what happens to the the Kurdish militias and and the others that we've been working with? to get rid of them? Are, are they going to be providing uh, population security? And also, what happens if Assad decides that he's going to take the fight to them? I mean, that's, a, uh, that's a good question, and it's really like the question that everyone asks, like what's, how, what's going to happen after Raqqa? And, you know, I still have the kind of the hope for like another two or three months, and then uh, we'll see what happens. But I have the hope that once Raqqa is liberated by whoever there uh, is, uh, then, you know, you have to have a different policy that, that's different from the Obama uh, policy. You, you see, the tricky problem here is that when the Trump administration took over, it inherited a certain policy that uh, primed the situation on the ground in such a way that uh, the new team has to choose based on the, you know, the reality on the ground. And the reality was that the Kurdish-backed militias are surrounding surrounding Raqqa, so you can't really just uh, ask them to go back and uh, change them, change change the forces. That that was uh, impossible to do, almost very very difficult. Unless 
you pause the fight against Raqqa for another year, and they were not willing to do that. So, uh, you know, you can give them a pass to say, okay, let's uh, finish ISIS in Raqqa, but there has to be something after Raqqa that doesn't involve, like I said, the control by a Kurdish militia that's, that is viewed suspiciously by people in Raqqa and elsewhere, and that has committed some uh, crimes allegedly in uh, uh, in terms of kind of uh, preventing people from going back to their areas and so on. So people accuse them of ethnic uh, cleansing. In the, in these, uh, I don't think it's that dangerous, but it's, uh, there are some uh, incidents uh, along these lines. By the way, I wanted to ask so, you, Osama, while we've got you here, um, and Hassan Hassan is co-author of in- ISIS Inside the Army of Terror, which is a 2015 New York Times bestseller on the Islamic State. Uh, the campaign to take Mosul back, uh, we had been hearing for a while that it was a slow uh, difficult fight, but that it was g- moving in the right direction, progressing. There have always been concerns about sectarian bloodshed and extrajudicial killings and other violence by the security forces. Have we seen that, or is that still not yet uh, getting, uh, is, is that not yet a, a major problem? No, it has already been happening. It's, a ver- it's, very, very, uh, it's very sad that the dynamics that led, uh, uh, led to the rise of ISIS in 2000. 2014 uh, are playing out again uh, uh, in, in Iraq uh, today. For example, the federal police w- w- were always seen as this kind of thuggish, uh, very indisciplined, uh, undisciplined uh, militias uh, in, in Mosul uh, back in the day. Uh, and, and uh, you know, we thought like we learned the lessons and we longer uh, should have forces like that uh, treating local, uh, locals in the same way, torture, murder, even rape. Uh, Der Spiegel has, done, has just done a story about, uh, uh, about uh, the federal police uh, that are supposed to be a national force, but it's, in fact it is uh, dominated by a better, the Bedr organization, which is Iran, Iranian-backed militia. So it's really kind of um, it's the core of the federal police. So we're already seeing these abuses. Uh, we have been already uh, uh, hearing about these from uh, even Iraqi politicians. So I think uh, similar patterns are playing out again. And the fear is, uh, you know, because we're not fighting ISIS in, this, in, the, in a proper way, uh, this problem will continue. Hassan Hassan is a resident fellow at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy and co-author of ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Hassan, always great to have you, sir. Uh, we appreciate it. Thank you for having me again. Thanks. Uh, team, we are going to hit a quick break and we'll be right back. All right, the travel ban. There is a new development in the Trump travel ban situation. Here's what it is. Uh, courtesy of the New York Times, a federal appeals court refused Thursday to reinstate President Trump's revised travel ban, saying it drips with religious intolerance, animus, and discrimination. The decision from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit in Richmond, Virginia, was a setback for the administration's efforts to limit travel from several predominantly Muslim countries. Attorney General Jeff Sessions said the administration would appeal the decision to the Supreme Court. The courts, the, the, this lower court's vote, I should note, was 10 to 3, divided strictly along ideological lines. And who wants to guess... Yep, that's right. Three Republicans were in dissent. Ten Democrats were uh, part of the majority opinion here, which said that the uh, 
the ban will not be reinstated. It's not even a ban. It's a temporary cessation of travel from whatever, six Muslim-majority countries for a, a, a predetermined window of time while vetting procedures are tightened and scrutinized. Um, you know, I, I, I hate to say it, but, you know, the, the British have got to be looking at their vetting procedures right now, right? I mean, let's be honest about this. They let in a refugee, and the refugee's kid was a terrorist, and, you know, if they had looked closer, the refugee himself was involved with extremism. Uh, originally, back in 1993, I mean, vetting procedures are uh, very serious business, especially when you're talking about refugees from countries where there is a very r- real threat of extremism, uh, Islamist and jihadist indoctrination, and the uh, follow-on effect of terrorism from that. So, uh, but this is... This is really damaging, back to this decision, this is really damaging because it's yet another time where we see that the courts are now just another instrument of politics. That anyone could read, that any judge, uh, a, a person who is steeped in, at least allegedly, theoretically, steeped in the law and a, a scholar and a practitioner uh, of the law... Uh, that a federal appeals court judge would say that the travel ban, quote, drips with religious intolerance, animus, and discrimination. Uh, There is nothing about religion in the ban, or whatever we're going to call it. There is absolutely nothing in it that discriminates against any religion. Uh, But because it names countries that happen to be places that are predominantly Muslim, but not entirely, they are viewing it as discriminatory. And then also on top of that, uh, I'm sure they still feel that Trump's statements on the campaign trail um, are somehow admissible here, which just kicks kicks open so many problems for uh, judicial review going forward. Um, I am I'm sitting here and the more I think about it, the more I see that we no longer have any institutions of government that are free of partisanship. Uh, we, we just don't. I mean, you know, you, uh, the, the the military maybe is the, is the closest, but even when you get to the – once people get stars on their shoulders, they, there tends to be a – they tend to become very political in a lot of their approach to things. Um, so I'm not speaking about the rank and file, but if you look at the senior leadership – we know the FBI, the DOJ are politicized. We know the courts are entirely politicized. And now everything is just a, a political fight through the prism of a U.S. institution. Right. And we're told that and that's also, I think, part of the, the disconnect here is that we're told that these are nonpartisan institutions. We're told to you know, respect, respect the judiciary and and respect the Department of Justice. And uh, what is the. What is the major U.S. institution right now that has not been shown to be, if not full of uh, partisan conflicts of interest, at least subject to some pretty major ones at different times? Uh, the, the judiciary now, we can look at this and in many cases, especially depending on the on the circuit and depending on the the um, the how hot button a case may be. You look and you say, okay, well, these are Democrat appointees. They're going to go this way. And these are judges. It's not supposed to be like that. And you look, if these are Republican appointees, they're going to go this way. Although, 
Republicans are much more likely as judges to say, well, you know, I don't like this, but this is what the law says. Democrats never seem to say that. This is this is not a, oh, it happens on both sides kind of a thing. With Democrat judges, it's, I see it the way I want to see it. Yeah, that's not what the law says, but I don't care. And meanwhile, Republicans are the ones standing around on, you know, on the bench, or I guess they're sitting on the bench, and saying to themselves, you know, well, granted, I think this is a bad policy choice, and I think that this is unfair, but it's not unconstitutional, and that's what the law says. So we're always at a disadvantage here uh, because the right still, although it feels like some sometimes less so these days in the era of Trump, but the right still plays by rules. Um, and the the right, uh, and what I mean by the rules thing, guys, we're going to talk later about that uh, Montana congressional candidate. The election's tonight. It's the polls close in a couple hours. Um, but, I mean, come on. We, we can't have – I'm seeing some people that I like on the social media that all of a sudden are like, yeah, you know, body slammer reporter. No, no, not okay. Not allowable. Um, but anyway, back to this judge thing. It's just – it's typical. The judiciary is considered a bulwark against Trump's agenda, and that's what they did here with the travel ban. We've got more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, team, welcome back. We are joined by Inez Felcher-Stepman. Congratulations on the Stepman part, Inez. Uh, She's Director of Education and Workforce at the American Legislative Exchange Council and a senior contributor to The Federalist. Inez, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Buck. Um, all right, let's, you know a lot about schools, charter schools, school choice. Uh, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal earlier in the week on what they call the Los Angeles Charter School Uprising. What, what's happening here and, and what, what implication do you think it might have for education policy going forward? So basically in the sort of liberal bastion of California and even within California, the liberal bastion of L.A., um, the school board of the second largest school district in the country has a pro-charter majority. Um, And that's causing a lot of consternation um, and controversy in L.A., but uh, I think it's a great thing. Yeah, so they're just assuming that because there are more people now, they they haven't done anything yet. It's just there's a majority of board seats now that are held by people who are pro-charter, and the public school system, or I should say the public school unions, are just freaking out in L.A. about this. Absolutely. I mean, and and they have good reason to freak out um, on the merits. They're not delivering a great education to their students. Only one in five of their students are proficient, or fourth grade students are proficient on the NAEP, which is our sort of national report card uh, test. And even though they say they spend around $11,000 a student, the real figure when you include bonds and local funds um, from people's property taxes and so on is closer to $30,000 per student. So they're paying a lot of money and they're not necessarily educating kids well. So so they're they're spending almost as much money as the most elite private schools in New York City charge students. And yet we're getting terrible results by and large in the public school system in L.A. How does the uh, how does the public school union there try to defend this? What's their complaint? We need more money. I mean, that's usually what it is in the past. 
that's always what it is. It's always more money, even though if you look at charts about um, showing how much we've spent on public school education per pupil over the last 30 to 40 years, what you see is we've spent more and more and more money, and results are either flat or trending downward. So um, clearly more money has not been the answer for a while now, and um, but it is always the answer we hear from unions as an excuse, or that or they blame the kids, right? Oh, well, you know, our kids are... Um, disadvantaged in in various ways. And I'm not denying that, um, you know, for example, family structure makes a huge difference in in terms of a kid's life and and sort of how how easily that child will take to learning or learning environment. But the fact is that the charters are taking the exact same population of students and doing much, much better than the public schools. So clearly, shifting the blame onto the kids is the the wrong thing to do. We're speaking to Inez Felcher-Stepman. She's Director of Education and Workforce at the American Legislative Exchange Council and a senior contributor to The Federalist. Uh, Inez, Betsy DeVos is a polarizing figure on the left, which is amazing because she seems just like a really nice billionaire lady who wants to help out predominantly underprivileged and minority kids with the education system. But there have been protests when she shows up to speak places. She's gotten booed at places. She is identified as a school choice advocate. Um, What policies is she planning to pursue that make the left so upset? Like, if we want to take this out beyond L.A. and the education department under DeVos going forward, what does it look like? Well, I mean, I think that one of the major reasons you see this organized opposition is, one, because the teachers' union's opposition is organized, more well-organized than, say, um, people who might support DeVos or ideas. But I think that she's become a lightning rod because she has supported school choice very vociferously and publicly and with her money in the past. Um, And as we see in L.A., right, even giving a small amount of choice, even between a public charter school and a traditional public school to kids, that just drives the unions up the wall, um, even that small modicum of choice. Whereas Betsy DeVos not only champions charter schools, she champions programs like vouchers or education savings accounts that allow parents total control over the money or a portion of the money that the state spends in their name. For parents at home who are listening right now, Inez, what are some of the success stories? What are states or localities across the country that have shown really fantastic results with exactly the kind of school choice policies that Betsy DeVos and and those on her side of the education reform uh, issue uh, would advocate for? Uh, Well, Arizona is a really, really great poster case. Um, They're number one in um, our rankings of uh, state education policy. And they're they're really changing not just, you know, by adding a program here or there that allows choice to a small number of kids. But um, as of this legislative uh, session, they have expanded education savings accounts, which is a program that allows parents complete control over those dollars. Literally, we put it in a debit account for them and they can use it for any education related purpose. Um, and they've expanded that program to every kid. Every kid is eligible for this program now in Arizona. They have a fantastic charter sector, and they have tax credit scholarship programs as well. So there's really an enormous amount of choice going on in Arizona, and we're seeing the results. So Arizona kids who are a much poorer and much um, more Hispanic population than the Northeast, Massachusetts, Connecticut, they always sort of top out on the NAEP. Um, and what we're seeing is that that population of kids in Arizona, when given choice, is actually performing really close to the level of the much more privileged population um, near Harvard or Yale, right? 
So um, we're seeing that that choice is making a huge difference. It's, it's, it's paradoxical, though, isn't it? Because when there are phenomenal results shown, when there are experiments like this uh, that are undertaken by certain school districts, uh, that's the most terrifying thing to the left. And, and that's so unfortunate. But we saw it here in New York City, uh, where I live, when early on in Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York City, former close Hillary Clinton confidant and uh, I, I think still in his own mind, at least aspirant to national Democratic office um, or you know, at, at least uh, governor of New York and maybe something beyond that. He wanted to shut down a school in Harlem that was taking underprivileged, almost I think it was entirely minority school population. And they were performing at the top state level in terms of math for their grade. Wanted to shut it down. You're, you're referring to Success Academy, yes. right? Um, yeah, they're they're doing fantastic work in New York. Um, I do think it's important to note that it, test scores are not the only way to evaluate either charters or schools. Um, and and increasingly, what we're looking at are larger life outcomes, and and that's where I think choice begins to shine even more. Now we do see hard test score increases um, in a lot of the programs, but to me, even more importantly. You see things like graduation rates and college attendance rates going up, which matters a lot more statistically for a kid's future. Whether or not you have that diploma, it actually turns out to be a lot more important in your life as to whether or not your, your math scores go up or down. And for broader society, I think uh, one of the most interesting pieces of data that's come out recently is that the Milwaukee program um, in Minnesota, the um, students in the voucher program who went to private schools have a 79% reduction in felony charges than wow. their public school peers. Yeah, you don't right? often hear about the behavioral impacts of going to a school that, that, that has structure and a, sense of commu- and a real sense of durable community, but uh, I'm, that, that's an astonishing statistic. Yeah, absolutely. I think that needs to be more known, right? We're not just talking about kids as test-taking machines. I think we, um, in the education community, maybe we get too focused on those test scores because they're the only standardized assessment that we have. So when you're looking at, you know, millions of kids, you've got to look at data points like test scores. But really, parents are the only ones and family members are the only ones who can look at a kid every day and say, he's happy in this environment. He's learning. He wants to learn, right? I can see him going down a good path as opposed to a bad path in life. Uh, Parents are the only ones who can make those kinds of individualized assessments of their children, and they know their children best. And that's why those decisions should be in their hands rather than in some distant bureaucrat's hands who's probably never met the kid and never will. Inez, um, one more for you. And before we let you go, you study education policy very closely. Are we at something of a tipping point here? Uh, are, are we starting to win the battle for freedom in education, school choice? Uh, is that happening or is it still in a stalemate and needs a lot of mo- needs a lot more momentum? I think it needs a lot more momentum because even though we've had a lot of success passing small programs, um, the majority of states now have some kind of private school choice program. I think it's 42 states have charter laws. Um, But what we haven't, we need that, uh, we still need that really strong push is to, to have a broader vision of education reform than just a ticket out of a really failing school. That's great, but really what we need to do is update our vision of public education. Yeah, how about no more failed schools? A, a diversity of options and, and different content as well. I mean, I think we ignore the content piece of this. We are an incredibly diverse country. And um, increasingly, right, the, the um, public school system has 
a particular point of view. All the teachers, um, teachers' colleges pump out teachers with the same prep materials and the same point of view. Um, and increasingly, I think it's really important that parents have control not just over how their kids learn, but what their kids learn. And um, I think that those kinds of broader vision choice programs have yet to really catch on any place outside of Arizona, which now has a universal program, and Nevada, which passed a universal ESA program, but the legislature has yet to fund it. Inez Felcher uh, Stepman is a senior contributor to The Federalist and director of education and workforce at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Inez, thanks so much for making the time. Come back soon. Thanks for having me, Buck. Team, we are going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. So earlier this week, I went to a uh, a very nice dinner. I was a, I was a guest. Uh, went with Molly, my girlfriend. We had a, a lovely time. Uh, food was excellent. It was one of these foundations that uh, does you know good work around the world. I'll be honest with you. It was the mission statement is vague enough that still. To this day, I'm wondering exactly what goes on. It's a lot of education foundation stuff, but not not working on education per se, just teaching people about things, about about the world and, and about foreign policy. Um, so that's it. And it was one of these things where, you know, I was I was an invited guest and, of course, a lovely time. It was nice to sit down. I'm not one for I'm going I'm to give you a few of my rules, a few of Buck rules when it comes to any events like this. Uh, one is. Uh, if you're the keynote speaker, all right, I, I, I will give you a max of 20 minutes before I just don't want to hear anything really anymore. I mean, there are some exceptions. I was at a, a charity event a while back where uh, Chris Peranto, Tonto, um, gave his version of events from the night of the Benghazi, uh, the Benghazi attack. I mean, and I could have listened to that for, well, as long as he could have possibly ever wanted to talk about it, right? But generally speaking... 20 minutes is is the max for me when you're at a sit-down dinner and you have to hear someone giving a speech, especially when they're going off of prepared remarks. Someone standing up at a lectern reading is never fun. Uh, but really, I find that unless you're the keynote, and I think 15 minutes is the sweet spot, I've never heard somebody give a 15-minute speech at a gathering of any kind and been like, well, I really wish it had gone on for an hour, but I have been at some where it went on for an hour, and I was like, make it stop. So uh, this this went on for a, a little while. There were a few speeches, which was and it was after the the food had been served. Now, that's all fine, but you know you, you want the speeches that come before the big speech to go by very quickly. And I have to say, I I find myself falling back on my rule for wedding speeches, uh, which is it's really well, a couple things. I have a few rules about public speaking for people who don't do public speaking or don't like it, right? If you like it, then, you know, you do your own thing. But if you don't like it, or if you have a captive audience that cannot escape, like you're at a dinner or sit down dinner or a wedding, uh, a few things you're, you're never allowed to start. And I, I borrow this from one of my family members who came up with this. You're not allowed to start by saying, I hate giving public speeches. That's not an okay rule. If you're going to speak in front of people, don't tell them beforehand you hate what you're about to do. So that's an, that's one thing. I know people, uh, public speaking is a very common fear, which which I understand. Um, you know, I'm scared of all kinds of weird stuff, but uh, public speaking is not one of the things that frightens me. Although I was somebody with a speech impediment growing up, so you can imagine to go from having a speech impediment as a kid and having to have speech therapy to doing three hours of a nationally syndicated radio show every day is is a bit of a 
uh, a journey. Um, anyway, public speaking, if you're going to be at a, a dinner like this, if you're going to be addressing a room full of people who have no choice but to sit there, uh, at a wedding, it's under three minutes, right? If you're giving a toast or you're, or you're want, making one of those speeches, you know, you know, I met Susie when we were in our sorority together and we were just like, just having so much fun and you know, that's fine. Three minutes. Okay. Beyond three minutes, everyone's like, all right, it's, it's really enough. And once you get beyond 10 minutes, it becomes a form of torture. Uh, so at, at a sit down dinner, I think the, the, the rules are if you're not the main speaker, Three minutes is the sweet spot. Got to be less than five. If you are the main speaker, 15 minutes is a sweet spot. It's got to be less than 20. Because I just don't. There are so few people that I want to sit there. prepare When they're reading remarks, too, uh, there are so few people that you're going to want to hear their prepared remarks on that uh, it's just better to go shorter. Uh, you, you never spoil the party. You, you never mess things up by going too short. Uh, you definitely can mess things up. You can definitely mess up the vibe by going way too long. Uh, and I, I've been to some weddings where you got to that point in the in the rehearsal dinner process, for example, where like all of a sudden, you know, you know, second cousin, you know, Morty is standing up and he's just like, I don't really know the bride. I don't really know the groom. But, uh, you know, I've learned a lot of lessons in my life. And, uh, it's like, oh gosh, here it goes. There's no escape, you know. And if you're, there's, there's nowhere to go because if you get up, everyone's gonna know that you're bailing on, on cousin Morty. You know, and, uh, you know, life is messed up, but you know, you gotta do what you gotta do. Uh, so anyway, none of that happened last night. It was a very, uh, a, a very well put on, a lovely uh, event. But I, I did one thing I did pick up on that I thought was uh, noteworthy and worth sharing with you is. There was a lot of talk of corporate culture, and I'm not often uh, subject to the language of corporate culture, although I do come from the federal government originally as my first employer, where there is an entire language of acronyms, which is a whole other thing. And then there's also the the bureaucraties. I mean, there's the there's bureaucratic speak. That's not just in government. It's uh, it's it's elsewhere. But people say, you know, you got to circle back. You know, people always say, we got to circle back on this one. Uh, that was one thing that I remember hearing in corporate culture. And um, you you would also, oh, of course, the, the, the classics, right? Think outside the box. Uh, I, I, I could sit here. You're probably rattling off more than I can off the top of your head right now, especially those of you that work in an, in an office. Oh, yeah. Talk, uh, uh, synergy, dynamism. These These are words that you can just use in a work environment, in a, in a corporate environment, and people will think that somehow maybe maybe you know what you're talking about. You know, there's there's synergy and dynamism when we're thinking outside the box and circling back to close the loop on whether we're tackling that project with best practices. Ooh, best practices, that's another one. Uh, but, you know, I was listening last night to the, the, the sort of bureaucraties of, of foundation speak, and all I know about this now is, you, and I've, this isn't the first time I've been exposed to it before, but you just have to talk about community and development. And you can mix up those two terms, you know, fostering community development, working together with international partners for the community, and also uh, partnering together on development for the community. And just you just keep running around in, in, in circles on this. And... Uh, I, I think that corporate America now has reached a point, 
um, even when we're talking about charity and areas of uh, what social enterprise and and social giving and and good things, where there's almost an, an expectation of bland and neutral language, uh, so that you avoid offense, you avoid uh, conveying any unwanted thoughts, and it results in just a long string of of cliches and pieties and just stuff that doesn't really have meaning to normal people, right? You want to hear someone speak to you. And I was thinking about this last night and I know you can just, you know, slap me for saying this, but I was like, this, this is what people respond to with Trump. Uh, They just want somebody who talks to them. They just want a person. If they have to listen to a person, they just want somebody who's like, hey, you're, you're a human being. I'm a human being. I am communicating thoughts and things to you now. And not I am filtering it through this robo speak because I don't want to offend. I, I don't want to be, uh, you know, annoying. I, I don't want to be un-PC. Forget about being annoying, actually. That, that's, that's not the issue. I don't want to be politically incorrect. Uh, you know, and of course, you can always throw in terms like you know diversity and oh, collaboration is another one, right? I mean, you know, collaboration with Russian intelligence would be bad, but uh, collaboration as a general concept is usually warmly welcomed in these places. And I, I'm just so in favor of. I, I do not like prepared remarks as a general rule. Uh, I know for political purposes and the reason why people do it, but if you're addressing a, a room full of people. Having some notes, or at least prepare remarks a little bit, and then just go off the cuff. But no matter where you are, I, I was thinking about it last night, and I was having a lovely time. It was a great event, and it was a very important cause. But people just want to be spoken to like people. They don't. They don't want the robo speak of bureaucrats. Um, otherwise, that's how you get Trump. In the break, we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. Well, a couple of ladies wanted to make some burritos and that was a no-no, they found out. Let me tell you this story. It, It goes under the file of culinary cultural appropriation now. Uh, For those of you who may be unfamiliar, which is fine because it's a nonsense concept, but it's one that now the progressive left is increasingly obsessed with. Cultural appropriation is when you take something from another culture as your own uh, without proper respect or, you know, they add other little things. But it's it's more or less when you take stuff as a white person from a non-white culture and like it. It doesn't matter if you celebrate it. It doesn't matter if you think it's great. Uh, that you are taking it is almost a form of intellectual property theft in the minds of the progressive left now. Uh, it, it is such a crazy idea that it is hard to define and hard to understand. But it's a real thing. Uh, the latest example of this is in... <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Uh, a Portland pop-up shop called Kook's Burritos where they wanted to make some really great burritos. And here's the problem. Uh, These two ladies, who are white, by the way. Good gosh. These two ladies wanted to make some burritos. So they were on a trip to Puerto Nuevo, uh, Mexico, where they picked the brains. uh, This is a quote from a heatstreet.com piece. They picked the brains of the local tortilla chefs, and they brought those recipes back to the States. Quote, 
I picked the brains of every tortilla lady there in the worst broken Spanish ever, and they showed me a little of what they did. They told us the basic ingredients, and we saw them moving and stretching the dough, similar to how pizza makers do before rolling it out with rolling pins. They wouldn't tell us too much about technique, but we were peeking into the windows of every kitchen, totally fascinated by how easy they made it look. We learned quickly it isn't quite that easy. Well, this this was terrible for the uh, the social justice warriors in the media, of course. So you've got two white ladies that are down in Mexico watching how Mexican ladies are making burrito tortillas, and this is this is similar to uh, showing up and and stealing uh, the the most value like like valued cultural insider knowledge, I guess. That, that's the accusation here. You think I'm making this up. There's a site called Mike.com, which at one point, I will let you know, I considered writing a opposition column for. Uh, the, the, this management over there is very nice. I was going to write for Mike.com so that they could get a taste of what, because their audience is far left millennial. You're like, what's Mike.com, M-I-C.com? Far left millennial progressive lunatics. That's that's their audience, right? The the most social justicey of of, of social justice warriors uh, like to read Mike.com. So I, I was going to be a, a highbrow trolling effort, I guess, uh, a, a high concept trolling effort uh, that would have maybe driven some clicks. But I decided that after spending a little time on the site, I just I just couldn't do it. Uh, there there was so crazy, so detached from reality that I, I just wanted no part of it uh, and, and respectfully declined to write for them. Um, but here's what they say about this cultural appropriation issue. Quote, these white cooks bragged about stealing recipes from Mexico to start a Portland business. Uh, this is, a, I mean, they're, they're completely serious. Quote, the problem, of course, is that it's unclear whether the Mexican women who handed over their recipes ever got anything in return and now those same recipes are being sold as a delicacy in Portland. Uh, this has gotten crazy. It's, it's incredibly heated, by the way, the discussion over this. The comments section uh, in, in Mike and in, and in uh, Heat Street about this is uh, astonishingly nasty uh, because they're being accused of theft. It's like, well... If people are making food at a restaurant and you watch how they make food and you ask them, hey, how do you make that food? And they tell you that is not theft. That is a conversation. Uh, There seems to be a lack of understanding here of what constitutes intellectual property and trade secrets. Uh, Also, they're trying to make this seem like it's more meaning the social justice uh, complainers on this one uh, who have started a total witch hunt. I mean, they've had to shut down this burrito store. I mean, they have shut it down um, with all of the nasty online commentary. Um, they, they had to stop it. And now we, we go on and we're told that this is somehow, I don't know, pr- protecting foreign, foreign cultures and, and how wonderful they are. Um, this is, this is a, a, an example of a comment on HeatStreet.com on this piece. Remember, so we've got a couple of white ladies go down to Mexico learn how to make some good burritos, come back and say, hey, we learned how to make these by watching people in Mexico make them. And now they're being hounded on social media, terrible comments, all these one-star reviews, um, and and they just couldn't keep going on with it. They were in, uh, uh, it was forced to close. They were forced to close this shop because people were so nasty about it. 
And I wanted to show you, here are some of the, here's an example of a comment. Now that you all pretty boldly and blanking unapologetically stole the basis of these women's livelihoods, you can make their exact same product so other white people don't have to be inconvenienced by dealing with a pesky brown woman getting in their way. Um, that's that's from the comments section. Here. That's the level of, and I cut out the curses there, uh, that's the level of hatred that you see here from something that would seem to a normal, well-adjusted person so innocuous and, and straightforward. It would seem like this is not a big deal at all. And yet, here we are. Uh, their, their business shut down. I also think it's fascinating that you have such a... Um, so much illiteracy when it comes to economics on display by the left all the time. They really do not believe in supply and demand. They do not understand how an economy works or functions. They just believe in justice, uh, social justice, which is whatever they think it is, whatever makes them feel good. And uh, here they don't seem to understand that women having a pop-up shop making burritos in Portland does not put women in Mexico making burritos out of business. Uh, th- that's not how this works. And also, you, there's no such thing as an, as an intellectual copyright on a burrito. So, you know, this would be like somebody saying, well, there's a sandwich. Uh, unless they have patented a way of making their burritos that nobody else does, or unless they have an actual trade secret, uh, this is just common knowledge. But you see, it's not about that. It's the, the economic side of the argument is relevant to them because they do this with other things, too. The social justice warriors get upset. Here's a piece on the BBC that was trending just a couple of weeks ago. Um, are food bloggers fueling racist stereotypes? And they say in this piece, food media is predominantly generated by white people for white people. So when the subject veers toward anything outside of the Western canon, it's not uncommon to see things generalized, exotified, or misrepresented. Uh, And so they go into this and they complain about food bloggers who are sometimes pretty annoying people at restaurants who take like 10 photos of their food with a flash on their their, uh, camera phone, which I I do find very irritating, I should note. Uh, Part of the restaurant is the experience. It's not just the food, and I don't want to feel like I'm in some really crappy photo shoot when I'm sitting next to you, but I digress. Uh, But they will do things like set up chopsticks in a photo of, uh, you know, ramen noodles or in a a photo of pho, which I believe is Vietnamese. Um, And that's considered, according to the social justice uh, handbook, which changes every day based on what makes people on the left, cry and whine, uh, that makes uh, that makes a microaggression. So putting chopsticks in the photo so you can show that it is Asian is exotifying the dish and uh, making it seem like the other. So now we, we can't even celebrate food from other cultures and learn how to make food from other cultures without being called imperialist uh, ag- aggressors who are exploiting the poor non-white people of the world by uh, pillaging their their secrets of cuisine. I don't know. I mean, there's not a lot of secrets when it comes to food these days anyway, but I think everybody can pretty much go online and learn how to make anything they want, and practice makes perfect. That's why Buck Sexton makes the best scrambled eggs of any human being on the planet, right? It's not because I read something that was a crazy online secret, but it's because I just do it all the time, because I think bacon and eggs is what people should eat for breakfast. And so I do like five days a week, probably. 
Um, anyway, I, I just cultural appropriation. You can't make burritos. Uh, that's a no, no. Uh, if you borrow some local techniques from Mexico gets you in trouble. Oh my, you, you can't make this stuff up folks. Cultural appropriation of food. It's, it's a thing that upsets people on the left. Who knew? All right, we'll hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Decision about healthcare until you saw the bill and it just came out. And, what yeah, you and we'll about talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if you okay, have to speak right with now. Shane, please. But you know, I'm sick and tired of you guys. The you last guy that came in here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here. The last guy did the same thing. You were the guardian? Yes, and you just broke my glasses. You, the last guy did the same damn thing. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. You'd like me to get the hot up here, I'd also like to call the police. Can I get you guys' names? Hey, you gotta leave. He just body slammed me. You gotta leave. So you could call it reporter rage, I guess, or rage against a reporter. Uh, Wow, this is not what you would usually expect in the 24 hours before a congressional election. I know people have been talking about this one all day. That's why I'm hitting it uh, late in the show today. But here's what happened. In case you are not uh, completely up to speed on on this, you have Greg Gianforte. Uh, I don't know if it's, or maybe it's a Gianfort, uh, but the Italian would be Gianforte. Um, so we got Mr. Gianforte here, who is the Republican candidate for the seat that was opened up by Congressman Zinke when he became the uh, minister, uh, I was going to say Minister of the Interior. Pardon me. Um, he, <laughs> he's he, he is the Secretary of the Interior, Minister of the Interior. Um, so there's this open seat in Montana, and this election is happening. Uh, well, has happened just hours before the polls were scheduled to open. This happened, so it happened today, <laughs> which is crazy. And you have this guy, Ben Jacobs, who is a reporter for The Guardian, apparently went into John Forte's uh, office trying to get uh, some questions answered about the budget, which I have to say, uh, as questions from a reporter go, hey, can you explain the budget to me? That, that's about as straightforward and, and acceptable and within boundaries as one is going to get. It's not like he was busting in there, you know, there are allegations that you beat your wife or something like that. Uh, and and I I should be honest with you all. I generally speaking um, really dislike reporters. There are some that are great. There are a lot that are terrible, um, especially in the modern era of social media and the the Twitterati, the constant Twitter battling and uh, jockeying for attention and digital influence with reporters. Uh, I find a lot of journalists to be glorified gossip columnists and very self important and nasty, and lacking in ethics, and willing to play uh, quite dirty. Um, and, and a lot of them are untrustworthy. Some of them are fantastic, patriotic Americans, and they're great friends of mine. But a lot of journalists are terrible. That all said, I, I cannot be one of these people who turns around and, and condones body slamming or choking or whatever. I mean, there are different reports about what happened uh, a, as I understand it, diminutive guardian, not that it would matter I mean, if you were huge, you also shouldn't body slam him, but uh, John Forte should not be throwing some reporter around 
and and breaking his glasses and doing what he did. I know this. Uh, there were some conservatives today who uh, I think are getting a little too deep into the political tribalism here of left and right. You know, just because something happens to a leftist Democrat doesn't mean it's okay. You know, just something bad happens. Um, I, I was a little disappointed to see that people were defending this. I also should say this is not nearly as big a deal as a lot of people are pretending that it is. I mean, it's a misdemeanor assault charge. The guy's fine. It's not like he got his nose broken or had some, you know, he didn't get attacked with a deadly weapon or anything like that. That would be a felony. That'd be very serious. Um, if if John Fort say gets uh, if he gets convicted, he faces up to. Uh, six months in jail or fine of five hundred dollars. I mean, for a first offense misdemeanor charge like this, he's not going to get any. He's not going to get any jail time. Uh, he's not going to be uh, serving any time. That much I think is clear at this point. I don't think that we should be willing to uh, 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 abandon our our principles uh, just because of the politics of somebody on the other side. There's been far too much of this going on. Um, you, you can't you can't manhandle a reporter. It's it's not okay. I don't. I know it's fun to make jokes about body slamming annoying reporters uh, on Twitter and and such, but it's really not acceptable behavior. Uh, Paul Ryan was asked about this earlier today, and he said, "Well, the people of Montana will get to decide." And uh, yes, they certainly will. It'll be it'll be funny to see how this all shakes out if this happened in. A, a bluer state, I have a feeling that it would have a real impact on what if it were a tight election. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this guy managed to get elected anyway. Um, but I've had my fair share of times where I, I wished I could uh, take matters literally into my own hands with a journalist and, uh, and, and throw down. But I don't because I try to be a gentleman and I try to obey the law. Uh, so this guy Gianforte is... Um, well, has made a mistake that much. That much, I think, is clear at this point. And, my, and the conservatives who are out there, come on, guys. You know, the, we, it, again, it's inflated as an issue. This was like a major news story this morning. Uh, and it, you'll notice it's late in this program because there is actually important stuff going on uh, that we should be spending a lot more, not us, but the rest of the news media should be spending a lot more time on. But so so it is inflated. And anytime something happens to a journalist, of course, because it's like the the brotherhood, oh, microaggression, the the non the non uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, non cisgender, uh, non intersectional or intersectional. Maybe it's intersectional uh, group of reporters. I don't know. However, they would say it in progressive land. Uh, they rally around each other and they find that. This is a much bigger issue because it involves one of them. Anyway, John Forte, we'll see what happens with him. Uh, Republican congressional candidate in Montana. First one that I know of that has ever body slammed somebody the day of the election. So, and I played the audio for you, so you got to hear it. Uh, team, thank you so much for hanging out with me today. It is always a pleasure and an honor. Uh, of course, we'll be with you live tomorrow, same time as always. Please do check out BuckSaxton.com. We post stories throughout the day there. We are working on T-shirt designs. They will be coming out soon. The T-shirts will be amazing. Um, also, uh, I've got other projects in mind, but I'm going to start just unveiling them instead of promising them for all things Team Buck. So that'll be happening in the weeks ahead. Stay tuned and stay excited. Please do download Buck Saxon with America now 
on iTunes. Um, that's the uh, place you can subscribe. You can also listen on demand, the iHeart app, Bucks Action with America now. Uh, have a fantastic night, everybody, or uh, whenever you're listening to this. Uh, until the next time we get to hang, no matter what happens, no matter what comes your way, Shields High.